0: We basically spent the time from four o'clock Friday afternoon until it was eight o'clock just talking and tasting Pinot. And I thought, okay, screw my screw the motorway, screw my schedule. If if somebody's putting that stuff in front of me, I'll just lose a few hours of sleep and I you know, it was just it was one of those days where every single appointment is an eye opener and yeah, I just got into my car and drove you know into the direction of home I had a hotel booked halfway on the route and I just thought how lucky I am
1: Hello and welcome back to another edition of Friends of the Vine Wine Podcast. So in this episode, we are chatting with a wine writer who has her master's of wine. She's based in London, and she writes for quite a few different publications. She writes for Decanter. She writes for The Buyer. She writes for The Wine Enthusiast. And her primary focus is in Germany and Alsace, Austria, and uh, she's very well versed in... Uh, Pinot Noir specifically which was obviously a, a draw for me as I'm a big fan of Pinot as you guys all know my good friend Christina who I had on one of the previous episodes uh, was the person who mentioned I should chat with Anne as a as a person who is a a, a great wine writer that uh, also uh, has her masters of wine and those were a couple of the things I was looking for in my next guest so it's a great conversation and it's funny because, some of her most uh, poignant stories that she tells, or or some of the segues that she gets on, where she ends up in a tasting, and um, some of her tastings that she gets into, it just just fabulous. The experiences that she's having right now. So let's get right into this conversation, shall we? I'm glad I have you.
0: Well, hello. So. You ask away and I will try and do my best to answer.
1: (laughs) Well, let's start with, I'll start with a compliment because I I was talking with Christina Rasmussen and I said, I need to talk to someone about current wine trends. I need to talk to someone who's got a master's of wine. The first name that she gave me was yours.
0: Oh, that's very kind. Even though I'm not sure that I am useful on trends.
1: (laughs) If I
0: were, I'd be sitting in my Italian castello counting my money.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. How long have you been into wine and and just kind of, you've obviously been on this journey for a while now.
0: I have. And um, just last December, December 2018, I celebrated my 10th anniversary of being a freelancer. And before that, um, I was published before, but then I was still working another job.
1: So it's been quite. It's been quite a while now. It's been a decade. You said
0: exactly. Yes.
1: How did you? How did you get into wine in the first place? How, what was your? What was your path?
0: I got into wine. Hmm. It's a good question. But there are several paths to this because it took me a while to get round to wine, and um, but there is one key moment. I think I was predisposed to it because I. Um, grew up very much with the seasons, very much as an outdoor sea girl, and um, very much in touch with nature and with a great appreciation for nature. Um, and then that is pretty much my childhood but then I moved to London um, and I moved to London in order to study literature. And I always even as a teenager, as a child and as a teenager, I loved food. And um, I remember going to the library as a child and just getting recipe books out and trying to cook and, above all, bake things. And um, when I was in London, um, I what my favourite pastime then was cooking and creating, trying out recipes. And I was reading cookery books like other people read novels. And mm. um, so... Wine didn't really figure that much. Wine figured as um, something where you're traveling and you're passing through a wine region. So of course you stop and you taste and you take some stuff home with you and you drink it and you remember it. But that was as far as it went. However, there was an interest and I was on a camping trip and I'm trying to remember what the year would have been. Oh, I don't know. Time goes so quickly. So I was in a camping trip, and on this camping trip, we had the Christie's Encyclopedia of Wine with us anyway, and we happened to be in Tan l'Hermitage in the Rhone, and um, happened to stop by at the little um, shop that Chaputier has in Tarn l'Hermitage in the Rhone. And these people gave me two glasses of white wine, and they said, okay. This is the same grape, the same vintage. This is from old vines, and this is from new vines. And I tasted those two, and I thought, you're having me on. That's not possible.
1: Mm.
0: And this really was the parting shot for me to look into this. And so when I got back from holiday, I started looking into wine courses. You know, and then I did various wine courses. But I found them frustrating because they were all about oh, la-di-da, this is burgundy, and la-di-da, this is full of strawberries, and blah, blah, whatever. There was no structure. It was all kind of um, very, well, it was um, aimed at people who were just, you know, wanted to have a pleasant evening, wanted to be entertained, whereas I really wanted to understand. And so I started on the WSET courses. I can't remember how I found out about them, but I started... And then I thought, yeehaw! Here we go. There is structure, and this is what I needed. I needed structure. I wanted to learn. With that, with that framework of the WSET, I really started learning, and I never stopped. I'm still learning every day today. So, yes. And I, I remember it was in 2006 that I started um, with the WSET. Yeah.
1: There, there's such a popular way to get into wine and and even over here in, in Canada and stuff that they're definitely extremely popular and, and uh, have, have helped kind of launch a lot of a lot of people's interest in wine
0: absolutely and the fact that they are um, that it is an international picture and that each wine is looked at through exactly the same kind of system helps you immensely to make up your mind. And it introduced me to so many things I had no idea about. And I also remember, you know, like, the the good thing about WSET also is that you start at a very easy level. But then, with each level you advance, um, it really notches up what is required of you and what you learn. And I remember when I finally took the diploma that um, there is the paper 2, which is about viticulture and winemaking. Mm. That was the moment when I realized, oh my, there is so much going on here, of which I understand nothing. But it also was the point at which I then, and I remember this really as a turning point, this Unit 2 of the diploma level at the WSET, as being the point where I could go into a winery and ask the right questions. And that... Really was a turning point for me. Where well, I realized, okay, so now I, I know what to ask, and people see that I have not just a passing interest, and they will give me real information.
1: One of your main, um, one of your main, magazines that you write for is, is the Wine Enthusiast.
0: Yes, um, oh. I I write for the Wine Enthusiast, and I'm their contributing editor for Alsace, Austria, and England. But apart from that, I'm also a freelance and I write a lot for the world of fine wine. I write occasionally for Decanter, occasionally for German Falstaff and Wienum and um, for uh, an online site here in the UK called thebuyer.net. So I write widely. And my work for wine Enthusiast, um, being a contributing editor for a particular country, means that you review all of the wines. Um, from that country so um, tomorrow I'll be tasting my last batch of Austrian wines because last week two pallets of samples arrived so that's one um, being a wine enthusiast contributing editor means that you taste a lot and you you know you blind taste you write your notes you input those wines into a system and um, so that's that's very active tasting work but on top of that I also get to write for them which is wonderful.
1: Mm. Uh, and that's interesting because uh, i've for me i think and i was chatting with a, a i was chatting with someone who has that opportunity as well to to taste through especially chasing vertical tastings and stuff it's i think that's something that i'm i'm going to try and seek out more if you're going to particular wineries or particular and trying to trying to get that vertical tasting and see how the wine's develop through the years
0: well um vertical is one thing what i'm doing here is tasting horizontally so for instance i i need to taste blind but what i do is that i although i know for instance that tomorrow will be 32 Zweigelt wines from uh, the 2017 vintage so i'm blind tasting them to describe them to come up with a quality score but i don't spend any moment thinking about what could this be and where could it be from mm. So well, um, it's a very different kind of blind tasting, but um, it certainly helps and what helps me and what I always tell students and anybody who wants to get into wine, that what really helps you is to taste, say, doesn't really matter where you start, take one grape variety and taste that grape variety from different countries, take one grape variety and taste, uh, taste it through different vintages, different origins, different winemaking styles. Because the only way you find out and build a taste memory is by by having that experience, by comparing and contrasting, um, and this is the only way to really build experience. It,
1: it makes a lot of sense, especially I I noticed that you're a, a big Pinot Noir fan as well. Yeah, <laughs> and and that's that's my that's kind of my grape of of a lot of the people who listen to my my podcast know that I always talk about Pinot, and. Um, that would make sense to, to follow that formula and to taste it from, you know, wherever it's grown in the, in the world.
0: Absolutely. And I think with a grape like Pinot Noir, which really does grow internationally and which um, has such a great following. And so many people who are trying their damned hardest to make it the best it can be. It's always fascinating to taste it from no matter where it's from. So, um, yes, Pinot has so many faces um, and yes, they are all they're all interesting, and some of them just stop us in our tracks.
1: That's a good way to put it. Yeah, and that that was my about six years ago, I guess. Now um, we did a road road trip through Burgundy, <coughs> and um, my my wife's cousin lives in the in Provence, and we we did a road trip up through um, up through Burgundy up to Paris, and just going through the region and just and just tasting you know, the best, you know, the best that the world has to offer, shall we say, it was just amazing.
0: And it is an amazing experience, especially tasting wines where they were made, talking to the people who made them, walking in the vineyards where the grapes grew. That's a wonderful and wholesome experience, I think, and also a necessary experience if you want to get professionally involved with wine, Um, because otherwise... You'd be talking through your hat if you if you talk about things and you haven't been there and you well um, not everybody can afford to travel but certainly it helps to to um, you know experience how wine is made where wine is grown what helped me pass my exams um, was that I worked vintage and um, that taught me so much because I I didn't grow up on the vineyard and um, It wasn't, you know, agriculture wasn't my background. So it was very, very interesting to to do that sort of work.
1: There's something from recent that was a real emotional connection with you and a real emotional experience that you've had recently with with a particular, um, you know, a particular bottle.
0: Yes. Um, If I go to the fridge, I get them out now. Hang on. (laughs) So um, this happens in the course of my everyday work i told you i was just tasting my way through um, a load of austrian samples yeah and um last tuesday i was tasting um amongst other grape varieties um, the grape variety saint laurent which is a beautiful indigenous austrian red grape and what is one of the most beautiful aspects of my work is that i you know My neighbor, who helps me make the bottles blind, she comes in at 8 o'clock in the morning. Uh, She blinds up all the bottles, we number them, and then she leaves again, and I start tasting. And there are, of course, wines you like more and wines you like less. And sometimes that's hard work. You know, imagine yourself in front of 40 bottles of something you have to get through and write, even if the wines are very similar, write beautiful individual notes. Mm -hmm. So it can be hard work. But the most beautiful thing is if in that blind lineup there is a wine that just stands out and sings. And I had one such wine on Tuesday, and that was St. Laurent Alte by Ebner Ebenauer in the Weinviertel. And it was just so elegant, so true. It's, you know, at WSET and then at the Masters, we are trained to look for quality and um, so there are many wines that I get to taste that are of technical perfection or perfection if it can ever be attained but that wines that are just very very well made and that are beautiful and that, are, that have balance that have had no effort spared and I can see that they are very good wines and I say so. And then there are the wines that somehow evoke an emotional response and those really are the wines that I'm looking for and this happened to me with this particular bottle of Saint Laurent which was just dreamy and beautiful and that's why I kept the sample back so I could take some sips of it over the week and then the other bottle is something that um, is growing on me slowly because to my own surprise it is souvenir Blanc and it's Sauvignon Blanc from Styria, and this is a wine called Stradener Alte Rieben from a yeah. company called Neumeister, also in, um, well, in Styria, and this is actually planted um, in 1937, 1951 and 1967, so these are old Sauvignon Blanc vines, um, they were aged in wood and this is an incredibly elegant and deep wine. And um, it is such a beautiful face of Souvenir Blanc. So this is what happens to me in my everyday work. And then, because I was just traveling, I only got back Saturday week ago. And um, I I was traveling and having many, many appointments and quite a heavy schedule. Um, because I'm doing research for a book I'm writing at the moment on the wines of Germany. And so I had many appointments. And um, Friday, week ago, I um, met two young people who started a new sect company. Sect is the German word for sparkling wine. Okay. I was totally I was totally in love with their wines. They're called um, Burkhardt Schür, and they're in Burgstadt in Franconia. And um, they make just, just make such gorgeous, gorgeous, high quality effect. And we disgorged some bottles right there and then, tasted them raw without massage the They were beautiful. It was one of those experiences. And the same day later, I was with Paul Fürst um, on the Schlossberg in Klingenberg. And Paul Fürst is one of the one of the pioneers of German quality Pinot Noir and tasting wine with him and later in the cellar tasting Pinot Noirs with him from barrel it's just one of those priceless experiences you can have, it's just memorable and and a privilege yes.
1: That sounds lovely
0: Yes The day carried on in the most wonderful vein because I went to see another fabulous vineyard and then I stayed in that Pinot village and um, met with um, Benedict Balte who has a very very interesting approach to Pinot Noir mm. and uh, his wife who makes Pinot Noir in a different region in the R uh, he had her wine there as well from the new vintage so we basically spent the time from 4 o'clock Friday afternoon until it was 8 o'clock just talking and tasting Pinot and I thought, okay, screw, my, screw the motorway, screw my schedule. If, if somebody's putting that stuff in front of me, I'll just lose a few hours of sleep. And I, you know, it was just it was one of those days where every single appointment is an eye-opener. And, yeah, I just got into my car and drove, you know, into the direction of home. I had a hotel booked halfway on the route. And I just thought, how lucky I am.
1: When when you're tasting, you're obviously tasting a variety of different wines and a a variety of different styles. Um, I'm just curious how much natural wine uh, tasting that you do.
0: Um, I don't do natural wine tasting as a matter of course, but in the course of my work, I come across it time and again. And what strikes me is that the people who are good winemakers in the first place, and then turn to natural wine, they give us very, very, very interesting expressions of what they do. And um, what I don't like is people who think that natural wine is just about leaving out sulfur dioxide. There is a lot more to natural wine than that. And um, I actually don't have a problem with sulfur dioxide at all. And I love people who make wines that just defy the textbook. I was tasting with Edel and um, Hans-Peter Ziereisen, Um they have a winery in the very, very southern part of Germany, in the Markreffler Land in Baden, and they do crazy things. They age um, white wines with this bent lease from a previous ferment. Some of their wines have floor on them, um, so they're being aged um, biologically, if not oxidatively. They make They have one vineyard in which they have an amphora, and um, the moment the new grapes are ready to go into the amphora, the previous year's grapes come out. They are sort of scooped out um, of that amphora, and the new grapes go in, and then the amphora ferments. Once it stops fermenting, it's sealed, and then it stays there until the next year, and then they continue aging that whatever they scooped out they continue aging that in barrel and those are kind of mind-blowing wines I think they just show us a a different face of a grape variety and show us a new personality of a grape variety and I think certain grape varieties actually benefit immensely from from being say fermented on skin even though I know I have a veered off subject uh, because natural wine isn't really defined but um so I basically am open to anything that tastes good. That's mm-hmm. what I'm interested
1: in. Yeah, that's that, that's the thing is is some people, regardless of how it tastes, are will will be an advocate or be you know be supportive. And at the end of the day, is if it, if it tastes good, then then I'm happy.
0: <laughs> exactly, and I also think that there are things in life where we have to take a stand. I think there are very, very important things in politics, in human rights, where we absolutely need to take a stand and where we have to make up our minds and where we need to know our hearts and our minds and stand for that. However, wine is not such a place. I think wine lives entirely on pluralism. And if, you know... I don't know whether you are following social media, but there was quite a little spat about Sarah Jessica Parker, um, you know, the, the actress from Sex and the City, yeah. partnering with a New Zealand um, company to make Sauvignon Blanc. And some people think, oh, what a what a cynical commercial exercise and blah blah. And I think, come on, there will be people who will enjoy this wine, mm. yeah. and good for them. And there are certain things that that I enjoy and I spend my money on them and I get a kick out of drinking them. So I think the wine world lives off pluralism. The more, the merrier. And you just need to be able to make up your own mind and trust your own palate and drink what you like and what you enjoy. But it's not a place for grandstanding or dogma or judgment. I think it's exactly that sort of thing that... um, that that still makes this idea of elitism cling to the wine world yeah when it doesn't to i don't know nobody you know it seems to be um a scandal to put a wine into a newspaper that costs more than 15 pounds sterling when people think nothing of putting handbags into magazines that cost like a monthly salary so yeah. Nobody thinks handbags are elitist, but wine, for some reason, is elitist. It's exactly because of such sneering, and yeah. yeah so I, I have no time for that. Everybody should drink what they like.
1: There's people who, for whatever reason, want to put up barriers and want to make make wine, uh, like you said, an elitist thing. Or, or, it, for me, I I can't I can't um, agree more because, regardless of how they get into wine. Uh, and whether they're they're, they're buying ten dollar bottles or hundred dollar bottles, if they're enjoying it, they're enjoying it and, and however however they get into it. There's winemakers in um the US that were former um there's one who's like a former NFL quarterback and he now owns he's retired now owns a winery and he's making wine and he's probably he's probably brought people in the wine that would have never got into it in the first place.
0: Absolutely.
1: Sorry, I, know, I just remember the name is Drew Drew Bledsoe, I believe, and he's um, in in Washington State.
0: Good for him. And I and I completely agree with you. This is a thank God this is a free country and a free world in which you live, I live, um, and people can follow their pleasure. And wine is a cultural product, and there is you know there's low culture, there's high culture, and there's something eternally middle brow. But who are we? You know. It's just, I don't want to judge anyone for the wine they drink, full stop. We have never had such a golden age of wine where so much quality wine was available to so many people. And I think sometimes um, wine, wine writers forget about that. Of course, there is discernment. You know, the, there is always, there will always be, um, you know, proper literature. And there are far fewer people who read Virginia Woolf than people who read, I don't know, whatever popular author is in at the moment. But that's just par for the course, you know. It's it's a, it's a specialist subject and you if you are so inclined, you learn about it and there is lots to find out. And if that makes if you know, if that gives you a kick by all means, read my weirdo, nerdy articles that I publish in the World of Fine Wine. If, however, you just want to have some lubrication um, for a Friday night and you drink whatever plonk you find, well, that's fine with me too. I'm not here to be a missionary, you know. I'm, I'm in a niche, writing for a niche. That's how I see
1: it. Actually, one of my friends, one of my work colleagues, is actually an Italian wine scholar. Um, so he's always He's always um, he's my my Italian wine expert that I always talk with about because uh, I'm always trying to find the the Pinot equivalent from other regions if that if that makes any sense you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So um, he's he's always trying to promote Italian wines with me with with ones that he knows that he that he thinks all like.
0: Wonderful. I hope you've tasted a uh, Nerello Mascalese with him.
1: That's exactly the one that that was his first that was his first one that he he said you need to try this. If you like Pinot, let's start with this one.
0: <laughs> and you know what somebody said to me which I wish I had thought of that um, if Nebbiolo and Pinot Noir had a secret love child, that would be Nerello Mascalese. <laughs>
1: that's, that's a great way to put it. <laughs>
0: And um, I don't know the availability in Canada, but if you're a Pinot fan, you must taste German Spätburgunder.
1: No, I haven't tried that one yet. I'll have to. I'll have to try that one.
0: You must.
1: Can you email me the um, um, or how do you how do you spell that?
0: Spätburgunder. Let me email you right now. Sure. It's the German. It's the German name for Pinot Noir, and um, I have written extensively about it. And I love it. And that is what I was tasting with those Franconian producers um, last week. So let me just find my Umlaut. Here. It's in your inbox now.
1: Cool. Wonderful. That's great. Oh, there we go. Perfect.
0: And if there are any more questions, I'm at my desk this week.
1: Okay. So I- Thanks, Anne.
0: Take care.
1: Okay. I think we're going to leave it there for now. Thanks for listening. For more wine conversation and podcast updates, you can follow us on Instagram at Ian's Wine Truths. Check out our website for great photos of our guests, friends of the Com. Take care. Have a glass for me.